We're always thinking about building champions for education abroad and a site visit investment for an upper level administrator, an education abroad advisory committee member, or a faculty member is one great option to illustrate the education abroad experience. And of course, faculty who go may use the site visit as a means for planning their next faculty-led program. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides inaugural podcast, Changing Lives to Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with World Strides, and I'm so excited about this week's episode. Today, we're embarking on a journey into the very heart of international education, guided by a true luminary in our field. We'll be talking about an essential but often misunderstood component in, in education abroad, both the art and the science of site visits, as well as Fulbright International Education Administrator Seminars. As education abroad practitioners, sending students abroad is at the very heart of what we do each and every day. But how can we as practitioners be intentional in the way we approach our own travel? Joining us today is none other than Elizabeth Strong, the visionary director of the Office of Education Abroad at Missouri State University in beautiful Springfield, Missouri. In her role providing strategic direction to, of education abroad at Missouri State, Elizabeth leads and supports the education abroad staff at Missouri State. Uh, she provides ongoing oversight of operating, exchange, and short-term program budgets, leads the health and safety team, collaborates with college leadership to develop opportunities that meet student learning and internationalization goals, and engages campus administrative units to streamline processes and ensure alignment with federal compliance and campus policies. Yes, she's a busy woman. You might say that Elizabeth is a consummate international education boss. I, and many others out there, look up to Elizabeth as one of our North Stars in international education. And seriously, though, I kind of want to be Elizabeth when I grow up. You might even say she's one of the strongest leaders out there in education abroad. I had to do a strong pun. I hope she forgives me. Uh, Elizabeth has participated in many site visits over the years and is an expert on how education abroad practitioners at all levels can maximize their time abroad. We will also talk about how to advocate for the importance of site visits and why articulating the value of international travel to colleagues on our campuses is key. Elizabeth was awarded the Fulbright International Education Administrators Award for the South Korea program in 2023, and I can't wait to pick her brain about Fulbright. Elizabeth is also the author of Career Paths and Mentoring and NASA's fifth edition of the Guide to Education Abroad, and I so admire her commitment to developing her team members into leaders themselves. Some true leaders in our field were nurtured under Elizabeth's guidance, like friend of the pod, Ashley Nyer, uh, Director of Academic Programs Abroad at Louisiana State University. We'll dig into Elizabeth's brain on career pathing and, and mentorship as well. So stay tuned, dear listeners. You do not want to miss this episode. Elizabeth Strong, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Zach. I'm so glad to be here. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. To begin, could you please tell us a bit about your professional journey 
and give us a brief overview of the education abroad ecosystem at Missouri State University. Sure. Well, my journey was influenced by my parents who spent their careers in academia as faculty. So the new year always began for me in August. I started my work at Missouri State in service learning, moving from associate director to director. And I was really pleased to contribute to a team that built program participation from fewer than 300 students to over 2,000 students. And when I was in service learning, the then Study Away office approached me to ask me if I would work alongside a faculty member interested in introducing international service learning to students. Missouri State at that time, they wanted to ensure that the principles of service learning, including reciprocity and reflection, were built into that pilot program. So this project gave me the opportunity to test the waters in the education abroad space which was a strong interest of mine. And after that project, the director actually retired, and I was asked to serve as the interim director. And then, of course, I applied for the director position, and I was awarded the, the director position. Um, since then, I have been expanding options with Rockstar team members for over 10 years as the director of education abroad. And so we manage a portfolio of programs, mostly international, but we have a few domestic programs that are led by our faculty. Thank you for sharing that, Elizabeth. I, I know you're a busy woman over there, but I, hadn't, I did not know you had contributed to so much growth in education abroad at Missouri State. That's really incredible. Uh, you know, it's clear to me that you are truly dedicated to our field and have continuously found ways to capitalize on opportunities to grow as a professional and to give back to our field. One example, as I mentioned earlier, is your participation in a Fulbright International Educator Administrator Seminar in South Korea this past summer. For our listeners who might not be familiar, what is a Fulbright International Education Administrator Seminar? Sure, I think I'll start with a bit of history on the Fulbright because I think that's important to understand the seminar. So Fulbright Award programs were established in 1946 by Congress, and Fulbright is the U.S. government's flagship international education and cultural exchange program, and it's sponsored by the U.S. Department of State and administered by the Institute for International Education. Fulbright partners with over 160 countries, and it offers accomplished faculty, students, and administrators from all backgrounds, an unparalleled opportunity to study, teach, or conduct research. Fulbright's mission is to foster mutual understanding between nations, advance knowledge across communities, and improve lives around the world. And speaking directly to your question, Zach, many folks are aware of Fulbright Awards for faculty and students. However, the Fulbright International Education Administrator Seminars, or IEA Seminars, are fully funded opportunities for U.S. international education administrators to participate in intensive two-week seminars around the world to learn about other countries' higher ed systems. So generally, a cohort size is about 8 to 10 people. And of course, that cohort includes not only education abroad professionals, but our colleagues in international services as well. So those seminar activities will include cultural awareness briefings, campus visits to a variety of universities, briefings from faculty administrators 
at public and private higher education institutions, as well as from leading education ex experts and government officials. And finally, the tours of historical or cultural sites are a, really an important part of the seminar as well. Thank you for sharing that. I've never had the opportunity to participate myself, and I've always been so curious. What are some of the outcomes of an IEA seminar, Elizabeth, both in terms of learning outcomes uh, and the professional development for participants? Sure. Well, folks can expect to gain a much deeper understanding of the culture. I think we're familiar with that iceberg image many of us use when we speak to students about culture and we see above the waterline iceberg. The seminar really gets you below the waterline iceberg in terms of understanding the culture at a very deep level. Also, if you're awarded a Fulbright, you can expect introductions to upper-level administrators of potential partners. It's a great opportunity to showcase your institution within the host country. Mm, yes. I'd also say because faculty and upper-level administrators know of Fulbright's prestige, it can really lend some gravitas to your office because of the Fulbright name. And I would say lastly, you will grow your network with other seasoned professionals. My cohort included nine folks, three of whom were on the education abroad side of the house and the other six were IS folks. I'm curious, Elizabeth, on a more personal level, what motivated you to apply and how did the South Korea IEA seminar impact you? I'd love it if you could share some of your reflections and the initial results. I knew of the Fulbright program and I decided to apply for the Korea seminar in 2022 after I saw a continued uptick of Missouri State Education Abroad participation to Korea for several years, of course, with a dip during the pandemic. As you know, Zach, Korea has propelled its global success through innovation and exporting its K-content, especially its music, film, and gaming, and that has really influenced interest in Korea. At Missouri State, we offer only four semesters of Korean language instruction, and although we have tangential relationships with Korean universities through our partner providers, our Education Abroad office didn't have a direct partnership for students who were seeking language studies beyond Korean 202, which is intermediate Korean language. Another motivating factor for me as co-chair of Missouri State's Korea Mobility and Culture Initiative was to consider how I could further expand my education about Korea. The goals of the initiative are to increase mobility to and from Korea and build cultural awareness of Korea in the Missouri State and Springfield communities. And increasing cultural awareness is very important as we aim to actively address anti-Asian discrimination within our community. So the IEA seminar impacted me first through the books I read to prepare for the travel. I'll just share that I read Please Look After Mom by Kyung Suk Shin and White Chrysanthemum by Marilyn Brock. They were two books that really enabled me to fall even deeper in love with the Korean people. And I gained some insight into the Korean society. The travel for my Fulbright happened in June of this year. And I gained eight professional friends 
as we visited 15 universities within two weeks. So it was a whirlwind schedule. We spent our first week in Seoul and then the second week traveling southeast across the country to Busan. When we prepared for our university visits, one of the first nights we were in Seoul, we spent the night wrapping dozens of gifts that we had brought for various levels of administrators. And I'll give a shout out to Amy Bowes from Duke, who let us crash her room and managed all this gift giving protocol. But a typical day would include an early start. We had campus visits, uh, student meetings, lectures, lunch, another campus visit, and a cultural excursion. So they were jam-packed days. I planned a dinner with a Missouri State student who is from Korea while I was Seoul, and I really enjoyed visiting her on her home turf. I was just enamored with Korean people, history, the ubiquitous coffee shops, the food and their protocols. But more importantly, when I was there, I was able to identify two institutions with whom we are currently negotiating agreements for language learning. I learned about Korean's strong emphasis on education and the Korean system of higher ed, which I expected. I also learned about Korea's concern over their low birth rates, which, similar to the U.S., will impact future enrollment, Korea's interest in international students, their etiquette, and great respect for elders. Korea has welcoming people in a very safe country, and the Korean people are so resilient. And so, in short, it was a fabulous opportunity for me, professional, but ultimately for our students who will benefit from what I've learned. Thank you for sharing that with us, Elizabeth. That sounds certainly like a fantastic opportunity. And what terrific timing for you to be able to participate in Fulbright in South Korea. You know, if you had, if you had told me 14 years ago when we first opened programs in Korea that I would be talking to students about Korea each and every day, I don't think I would have believed you. Mm -hmm. But it is truly a juggernaut in terms of what our students are looking for this day and age. So what, what a time to be there. Yes. And, and I do want to comment on what you said about the networking component, right? There is nothing like spending two intensive weeks with colleagues in our field, you know, on a, on a site visit to become particularly close. Isn't that right? That is so true. Yes. <laughs> I would love it if you could take us behind the scenes, if you will. What are some of your pro tips on for submitting a competitive application for a Fulbright IEA? And where can our listeners find more details on the specifics of current offerings and deadlines? Well, Zach, I would recommend approaching the application with a plan for writing and requesting your recommendation letters. You really need time to craft your essays and then consider your revisions and then contact your professional references with enough information about the seminar and your goals to enable them to tailor the recommendations specifically for you. The application includes several essays that require the candidate to describe their achievements in the development of international initiatives, their five most significant professional accomplishments, and key responsibilities in their current position. So for me, the application process was really a time to reflect on my career thus far. You will need to explain why you're applying to the IEA seminar for the specific country that you selected. And if you are brand new to the field, consider what you'd like to accomplish as you build toward a future Fulbright application. 
Keep in mind that the application requires not only two letters of recommendation, but you will need the approval of your direct supervisor. And I'll share that the current IEA seminar countries are India, Taiwan, Japan, Korea, France, and Germany. And if you want to dig down into deadlines, the application process, eligibility requirements, just Google Fulbright International Education Administrators Award, and it will come right up. And I'd love to pivot our conversation just a bit at this point. Uh, another meaningful avenue of professional travel is the site visit. When practitioners like us spend time abroad with their exchange direct or provider partners, why are site visits important? And what are some of the takeaways for an institution when their staff or faculty engage in them? Well, site visits en enable education abroad professionals and campus collaborators to engage in hands-on learning about the region and the program for the benefit of students. I'll share that the Forum on Education Abroad maintains an excellent page on guidance on effective site visits through the lens of the standards of good practice for education abroad, as well as code of ethics for education abroad. So some obvious reasons for site visits include increasing knowledge about the program and region to support accurate student advising, reviewing program quality, and very importantly, understanding the site's health and safety protocols. But there are other reasons for sending faculty or colleagues who work outside the Education Abroad office to a site visit. In our work, we're always thinking about building champions for Education Abroad and a site visit investment for an upper-level administrator, an Education Abroad advisory committee member, or a faculty member is one great option to illustrate the Education Abroad experience. And of course, faculty who go may use a site visit as a means for planning their next faculty-led program. So leveraging site visits to be able to, uh, you know, achieve our campus internationalization goals. You know, I love how you mentioned that for campus collaborators who are outside of our offices, site visits can be so important as well. Absolutely. So um, you know, digging a bit deeper here, Elizabeth, how can we best frame and articulate the value of site visits to our colleagues, to key staff and faculty on campuses, and perhaps most, most importantly, to leadership. Meaning, how do we ensure that our campus community both understands the critical nature of such travel and how it best serves our institution and our students? Well, first of all, health and safety of our students are top priorities for all institutions. And without the site visit, institutions are relying solely on others' reports. Some institutions require periodic site visits for all portfolio options because of their institution's health and safety protocols. The health and safety review is a critical aspect of any site visit, and working alongside your university's risk manager will underscore the value of site visits. Academic rigor is another reason for an on-site review. Our field continues to push against stereotypes of the grand tour with academic standards and language that we use or we don't use. For example, at Missouri State, we don't use the word trip when describing a program or a site visit because trip can convey a tourism rather than an academic approach. And this may seem like splitting hairs, but the distinction is important because education abroad is an academic program. Language has the power to impact culture. 
We want our faculty program directors especially to be viewed through the lens of an academic director as they include education abroad work on their P&T documentation. With that in mind, classroom visits and meetings with faculty and students to discuss academic content are an important component of an academic and health and safety site visit. If folks are on site visits, I'll just share they may want to consider how social media posts about their work might influence how their campus community understands site visits. Also, post-travel, sending reports and offering presentations to stakeholders, provide tangible products for review, enable information to be disseminated to others, and invite others to ask about specific aspects of the program all while modeling site visit protocol that is expected. I think what you said about social media posts is particularly important. I, I really appreciate you lifting that up. Yes. You know, we as international educators know that site visits are not glamorous, and we often have to fulfill many of our day-to-day -day responsibilities on top of a full day with partners. I know the last time I was on a site visit, I felt like I was putting in 18 to 20 hour days each and every day. What are some tips that you have to maximize our limited time abroad and how, Elizabeth, can we maintain our stamina on those busy days? Well, Zach, I'll share that the needs for stamina could be applied to our work at home as well as That's abroad <laughs> <laughs> to the extent that one's body allows in terms of mobility. I highly recommend a regular exercise practice. Many of us spend a lot of time in meetings or typing while a typical site visit day begins very early and ends late into the evening because we all know there are no authentic 6 p.m. dinners in Italy. <laughs> Much of the day includes walking miles and miles. Um, and so we're all aware of the benefits of physical fitness and the stamina required on site visits is not only physical but mental. I will share, on the other hand, that the education abroad field is strongly committed to increasing access to all students. So if you need accommodation, do not hesitate to ask. A thorough site visit evaluation will include inquiries about accommodating students with different ranges of mobility, and the provider should be able to accommodate you. So if you're listening and you're a new education abroad professional, please know that our field is inclusive and welcomes diversity including diversity in mobility. So do not be afraid to ask for what you need. My Apple Watch is often very happy with me when I'm on a site visit. Yes. Uh, lots of steps. You know, I know that Missouri State is top notch when it comes to international education. And you personally have worked with your team to increase study abroad participation rates over the years. What are some things you have learned along the way when it comes to setting up partner provider visits to have measurable outcomes and selecting the right folks from your campus to go at the right time? Well, Zach, I would recommend that you're first clear about your office's purpose and goals of the site visit. Are you sending an advisor to see firsthand the facilities and academic offerings of a specific program? Or are you sending a faculty member in your work to integrate education abroad into the curriculum? And then second, I would confirm that the provider includes a pre-departure orientation and an itinerary that aligns with your site visit goals. And then third, build a comprehensive site visit form. Site visits should feature academic, health and safety, co-curricular learning, and housing options. 
This structured form will guide the participant on questions to ask and information to record. And the form also informs their post-travel report. And lastly, clarify the expectation that the traveler will present to the Education Abroad team and other members of your campus community. And the audience depends on the site visit's purpose of, and goals. For example, an advisor might report out to your Education Abroad team and specific faculty or department heads whose courses align well with that program, or a faculty member may report out to a specific curriculum committee. At Missouri State, we've sent abroad education abroad team members, faculty members, members uh, of our financial aid team, and professional advisors who are outside education abroad. Other institutions might send their SIO or other upper-level administrators as they build champions for education abroad. In terms of timing, it really depends on the provider's group site visit schedule. However, many providers offer individual site visits, which of course can be coordinated between your schedule and the provider's schedule. But I'll say that the advantage to a group site visit is the opportunity to meet other professionals and engage in conversations about their education abroad programs. I encourage Missouri State site visitors to go with specific questions about current issues such as software administration or innovative learning con content because there's plenty of time when you're traveling to a site or in meals to talk about non-site visit topics that really will generate ideas and more value for the time and the cost of that visit. Thank you for sharing that, Elizabeth. I want to give you some space to highlight successes on your campus. How have site visits impacted Missouri State's education abroad program? Well, site visits have enabled Missouri State's team to speak with confidence about our portfolio of programs and build faculty champions. Additionally, we've been able to advise students with different abilities about accommodations with firsthand knowledge. And as Director of Education Abroad, I lead the health and safety team for international travel and I coordinate emergency response protocols to respond to international risk management issues. So understanding our partners' programs, emergency response plans, and meeting my counterparts abroad has been very helpful. I'll say overall, these site visits have been able to provide depth to the breadth of relationships across campus, particularly with faculty. Because the majority of students choose faculty-led programs, building our faculty base across colleges includes exploratory travel and site visits. These investments continue to pay dividends as signature department programs are developed, maintained, and then passed down to the next generation of faculty leaders. While it's clear that intentional travel has many benefits, at the individual and institutional level, not everyone will have an opportunity for a site visit in the, in the immediate future. What are some other ways that practitioners can find professional development in our field, particularly for those in the earlier stages of their career? Sure. Well, there are so many options. I'll, say, I'll start with the Forum on Education Abroad, NAFSA, Diversity Abroad, and the Global Leadership League have many professional development opportunities. In particular, the Forum offers a new Emerging Leader in Education Abroad badge. And that's a great way to enhance leadership credentials. 
Also, the Global Leadership League offers early career professionals or new to the field affinity groups that may be a great place to start. For an early career professional, I highly recommend the Forum's Professional Certification in Education Abroad. So this is a program that would give you a deep dive into the standards of good practice for education abroad, which would then enable you to advocate for resources, improve student learning outcomes, and enhance education abroad programming. Another great option is NAFSA's Academy, and that's an intensive nine-month training program with networking opportunities, and it prepares participants to take on leadership roles. And speaking of NAFSA, their training core program is a wonderful opportunity for someone because I think the best way to learn is to teach. Um, I'll also recommend the forum's standards and action series that includes four books and NAFSA's Guide to Education Abroad, which is a flagship resource that offers in-depth content. Of course, the forum, NAFSA, Diversity Abroad, Global Leadership League, they all offer excellent webinars, and I say the learning options seem limitless. So I suggest folks just carve out time in their schedules to plan for and then engage in professional self-directed learning. Being intentional about finding the time. Yes, absolutely. Professional development. I think that's really, really smart. And I want to direct our listeners to another episode of this podcast where I had the pleasure of talking with Cynthia Banks about the Global Leadership League. I'm a big fan of the League, in addition to all the other organizations that Elizabeth mentioned, because the League offers a lot of really low cost and accessible options for professional development. Yes. Elizabeth, you mentioned that mentoring as one means of effective professional development. And I know this is something that you deeply believe in. You recently wrote a chapter, uh, Career Paths and Mentoring, in NAFSA's latest edition of the Guide to Education Abroad. Because our field has recently welcomed so many new professionals, could you share some ideas for finding a mentor? Sure. Well, mentors are key to career success in any field. And While we all have a general idea of what a mentor is, it might be helpful to start with an overarching definition of education abroad mentoring. So I'll just share that education abroad mentoring is a supportive relationship embedded within the career context that contributes to participants' growth and career development. So mentoring includes emotional roles or functions that enhance a sense of competence, clarity of identity, and effectiveness in a professional role. And career roles, or aspects of the relationship that enhance learning the ropes and preparing for an advancement in an organization. Mentoring happens both informally and formally. Sometimes a mentoring relationship develops informally as you interact with a colleague and that professional relationship just clicks. Sometimes a supervisor can be a mentor, but a supervisor and and a mentor are fundamentally not the same. A supervisor can serve as an effective coach and borrow from mentoring tools, but a supervisor is not typically an individual's mentor for a few reasons, and I'll I'll share some of those. First of all, mentees might hesitate to be vulnerable with the person responsible for evaluating their job performance. And then other staff who are not in that same relationship could feel that they are in a disadvantage. Um, especially because education abroad offices are characterized by a narrowing pyramid, which makes competition for promotion more intense as one advances. 
there's also the possibility that the relationship won't go smoothly or another reason why supervisor as mentor framework may not work is because an effective mentor relationship includes the voice of the mentee to choose their mentor and employees don't choose their supervisor. The good news is that the field of education abroad fosters a high level of collegiality and seasoned professionals are interested in helping others. So if you're looking for a mentor, I, I would suggest first that you consider your own goals and your contributions. What would you bring to the relationship as a mentee and what do you want to gain? Remember, both the mentor and the mentee benefit from a mentoring relationship. So if you're thinking about your short and your long-term goals, you might use a common goal development strategy called SMART, which stands for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Relevant, and Time-Bound. So after you've thought about those goals, I would next list, just list jobs and people that represent career goals. So maintaining a list of jobs and people who represent your career goals enable you to visualize the specific position to which you aspire. And you really need to understand the career paths of successful people on your list. Then lastly, I would just say reach out. Reach out for a mentor. You might want to ask a professional that you already know. Or you can look for a connection by asking a colleague or a supervisor for an introduction. Another option is to directly reach out to a prospective mentor, providing that your email reflects research on that prospective mentor's career. I also will share that if you're a person of color or an underrepresented person or identify as another marginalized identity, you might want to seek out an identity-based mentor, at least as one of your mentors, because discussing goals with people with a common identity can help you when you're negotiating identity-based work challenges. Elizabeth, I'm just so impressed with the intentionality you bring to all of your work. And I just want to thank you for sharing that. that thank you. That, your pro tips about mentorship with us today. And um, now I want to talk to you about something a bit more personal now. You know, I understand that your first international education experience was actually during middle school. Can you share a bit about that experience with our listeners and tell us how it impacted your life and professional trajectory? Sure. Well, my fun fact is that my first international travel was when I was in middle school. I accompanied my mother, who was a professor in the College of Education, and her students on a faculty-led program to London and Paris. So, of course, that experience ignited my love of travel, and it continued with my family and then through studying abroad in college. So that ultimately culminated in a career in education abroad. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And lastly, as we close out here, Elizabeth Strong, I just have one more question for you. As you think about education abroad in 2024, what makes you hopeful? Students continue to give me hope. Um, in particular, the greater number of diverse students who are pursuing education abroad due in part to specific programming, scholarships, and recruitment efforts of committed professionals. At Missouri State and around the country, we're seeing real and practical steps towards inclusive excellence. And of course, we're all aware of national and state-specific conversations around the words diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
and there's valid concern about the direction of legislation. But it's clear to me that the motivations and behaviors in this field continue to move toward accessibility. And this is what gives me hope that our future Open Doors numbers and Diversity Abroad's Diversity and Inclusion Survey will reflect a changing field. And I can't imagine a better place to end things than right there. Elizabeth Strong, this has been such a fantastic conversation. I can't thank you enough for being here. Thank you, Zach. It's great to be with you today. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World Strides colleagues, Lindsay Kelcher and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives Through Education Abroad on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together.